B'Shem Hashem Na'aseh V'Natzliach, Shiur Torah, always great to be in Miami, Baruch Hashem. We have uh, some new people in the crowd that uh, the Shiur keeps going, Baruch Hashem. A lot of people love the Shiurim from here specifically. They always ask me when I'm coming back to Miami. The Shiurim here have already for almost two years. I've always had special Siyat Bishmaya. So uh, for anyone new who doesn't know who I am or, uh, or, or the story and everything, the um, main focus of the Shiurim is for us to fix ourselves. So anyone here that's perfect, this is not for you. If anyone is perfect, you don't need to work on anything. You already know everything. I can't help you. I'm here because I need to help myself also. So that's what we show up to the shiur. So the key of the shiur is to try to get people closer to what Hashem actually said. In today's world, there's a very big confusion between what we hear and what Hashem actually said. It's a very big confusion. And the biggest confusion is usually because of different customs that have been added to Judaism over the years. Whether the customs are from Hasidut, or the customs are from certain countries, or the customs are because of certain ancestors, whether it's Ashkenazi or Sephardi or Litai, or it's a, I don't know, uh, uh, Yemenites, or it's this one. There's a million and a half different types of Jews, but there, and there's also 50 million opinions. So the thing is, though, is that these customs are good, as long as they bring you back to Hashem. What happens is, is that at some point along the way, someone takes the custom and improvises and starts telling themselves that the custom is more important than the actual Alakha. So they make Chumrot. And Rabbi Vadiyad, Zechir Tzadik Divracha, said that some people focus so much on Chumrot, they turn into Chamorim. They, f- they focus so much on stringencies, they turn into donkeys. Instead of uh, and chamor, and, and chamor and chumra sound the same. Why? Because instead of focusing on what we're supposed to do, we're focusing on something that's nice to do, maybe. This is a very, very big part of the confusion today. So the mo- most important focus is for us to focus on what Hashem actually said. And what I try to do with Siat Bishmaya, everything is with Hashem, is to sh- provide you sources of where it actually says what I'm telling you. And anytime it's my opinion, you'll know clearly it's my opinion. Because it doesn't sound like God. My opinion and God's opinion are two different things. If it was up to me, there will be no laws. Why? Because do what you want. What do I care if you keep Shabbat? What do I care if you marry this one, you marry that one? What, is it, what difference is it to me? And that's the thing that gets me when people try to spend time out of their day They stop their day, whatever they're doing, whether they're learning or they're working, whatever they're doing, and they come and they contact me either on the phone or on the internet, and Baruch Hashem, I'm very accessible, and they try to give me musal, they try to rebuke me, and they tell me, listen, what you're doing is wrong. Why is it wrong? Because you're telling people that they're wrong. You're telling people that they're doing wrong. I said, yeah, well, if somebody drives on Shabbat, God said they're wrong, not me. I'm just repeating what he said. If someone is married to a non-Jew, male or female, God said it's wrong, not me. I'm just repeating it. If someone is a homosexual, God said it's wrong, so I'm just repeating it. That's it. I didn't make any law. Never, ever, ever made a law that anyone listened to. Never. But they like to give me Musa because they say, yeah, but why don't you tell them loving things and nice things? I said, we do. Along the way of nice things, we also say the things that are very nice, but they sound hard. 
they sound terrible. It sounds terrible that someone that's a Jew that violates Shabbat according to Allah is putting his Judaism on suspension to such an extent that he is on the same level as an idol worshiper. That's harsh. It's terrible to hear. It's terrible to say. But that's what it says. So, this is a very difficult thing to do. To tell people these things. But telling them is doing them a favor. Why is telling them doing them a favor? That sounds good. He sounds interesting to them. Um, why is telling them doing them a favor? Because if you tell somebody that what they're doing is wrong, there's at least a 50% chance, 50%, at least 50%, and only, all things are 50%. There's at least a 50% chance that they will listen. And if they listen, they'll change. Now, if I take a coin and I flip it 1,000 times, and 1,000 times in a row, it turns heads. 1,000 times in a row, heads. I flip it 1,001 times, another time. What are the chances that it's going to be heads or tails? A thousand times in a row, it was heads. Thousand one. It's still 50% chance. It's, nothing changes. The fact that he never heard the truth until now doesn't mean that his chances of listening are any less. The fact that he's been lied to his whole life doesn't change anything. And this is one of the things we're going to talk about today because for some reason or another, one of the customs that has infected Judaism today like a disease is this belief that we are incapable of changing, we are incapable of hearing the truth, we are a special generation, but special, not like special like we're really amazing, special like, you know, the special needs kids that go in the back of the bus. Because we can't change. No offense to the kids. Actually, they're better than us if we're that type of special because we're able to change. They can't. But for some reasons, the leaders are trying to convince us we can't do anything about ourselves. We can't change. So God understands. God understands that Moses didn't have a car. That's why he didn't drive. But he understands I have a car. Mercedes Benz, $150,000. I have to drive it. Who's going to see me drive if I don't drive my $150,000 car? If it's not on Shabbat, during the week, no one's around. Or another guy says, no, no, I even have a better car, I have a Ferrari. If I don't drive to the beach to see a bunch of people that are practically naked, who's going to look at my $200,000 car? It's busquets if it's uh, wasting money. Isn't that Allah against waste? Yeah, it's called Bal Tashchit. He's going to make a law for himself. Why? Because some so-called rabbi or leader or someone told them, listen, you don't need to change. Why? God knew about you. And He knows you're weak. He knows you can't do it. He knows it's too much for you. He knows it's too hard for you. So, today, one of the things we're going to try to figure out is whether God said this or not. Whether God actually said, you know what, when we get to the end of days, moments before the Mashiach comes, all bets are off. Keep, don't keep, everybody's okay. I love you. I love you so much that you can do whatever you want. There was one time a guy that went to a um, gas station and right off the highway 
And right before he filled up gas, he looks, there's a huge, giant billboard, open 24-7. And this is in Israel. Open 24-7. Immediately, he put the gas thing back in, did not fill up any gas. He just asked the guy next to him, where is the next gas station? And he said, it's five miles ahead. He's like, okay. He goes, but there's gas right here. He goes, no, 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 thank you. I got to go somewhere else. The guy that was sitting over there was in a very fancy car. This guy that's leaving the car is in not such a fancy car. He's interested. You know, people are always interested in the choices we make. I asked him, why would you drive another five miles for gas if there's gas right here? He says, maybe you're not going to understand, but I'll tell you anyway. You ask a good question, I'll give you an answer. If you went someplace, you want to fill up gas, but the gas station has a billboard. And the billboard, there have a picture of your father and under the picture and around the picture and through the picture there's all types of insults on your father he's this and he's that and they're insulting him non-stop would you still fill up gas? he goes fill up gas I take the gas I burn the place up what are you talking about? he goes exactly so that's why I'm leaving he goes where's the billboard? where's your father? because you see that billboard it says 24-7 my father told us that he created the world in six days and rested on the seventh for me. For you. For everyone. And anyone that testifies against it is denying that he did it. It's as, they might as well say, there is no God. That's an insult to my father. I can't fill up gas with a clean heart knowing that they're insulting my father. With a big bull, billboard nonetheless. So the guy that he was telling the story to, it's like, yeah, listen, he wasn't exactly religious, but he found it interesting. And he said, listen, give me your number, maybe we'll be in touch. If I'm ever in town, da da da. He gave him a number. Nothing ever happened. Five years pass. One day, the guy, the religious guy that protected the honor of Hashem, gets a phone call from a strange number. The guy on the other line says, hey, how are you? This is the guy that with the gas station he reminds me, he goes, Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Thank you very much. I remember who you are. How are you? Are you in town? Maybe you want to come over for Shabbat? He goes, No, no, I'm not exactly in town, but uh, I am at a bank because I uh, my father just died and he left me with a huge inheritance. My father wasn't the most religious man, but for whatever reason or another, on his will he has this one condition that the only way that I could actually get this money is if I give it to an Avrech that has Yirat Shamayim. Now I had to go find out what Yirat Shamayim means. He's scared. He didn't know much Torah. And he said, fear of Hashem. I said, oh, that guy I know. I know one guy that's scared of God. I know a lot of people, he says. I'm rich. But there's only one guy I know and all the people that I know that's scared of God. It's the one guy that wouldn't fill up gas because it was going against God. So I called you. So I need you to give me your bank instructions so I can give you ma'asel, so I can give you 10% of my inheritance because that's the only way I get the money. And then also let me know where you live so I come for Shabbat maybe in the next couple of weeks. Wow. Amazing so, story. These types of things happen for those that protect the honor of Hashem, the honor of their father upstairs. Now what happens to those that are making excuses 
or even better yet, they take the words of Hashem and use it against him. So, in this Mishnah, we have something very interesting. The Mishnah that we're up to, Rabbi Akiva continues, and he says, "Akol tzafui, v'areshut netuna, u'betuv ha'olam nadun, v'akol lefi rov ha'maseh." Translation: Rabbi Akiva says, "Everything is foreseen, yet the freedom of choice is given. The world is judged with goodness, and everything depends on the abundance of good deeds." As we've already listened over the last 50 shulim of this uh, Mishnah, each time the simple translation is obvious. But if we go into the deeper into the words, we could have a shiur for 10 hours and it only covers half. Oh, Chaba. We almost canceled the whole thing because you weren't coming. So, so now, Rabbi Akiva is telling us as the Rambam, in his, in his Pirush, in his commentary on this Mishnah, he says that this is a very short Mishnah, but its significance is monumental. And unlike all of the other commentaries that the Rambam puts on the rest of the Mishnayot, which are relatively short on Pirkei Avot, this one is very extensive. And the reason why, he says, this Mishnah has the answer... It's one of the foundational questions for all of creation. Question is, do we have free choice? If God already knows what you're going to do, is it really free choice? This is a major question that people have to ask themselves at some point in their life. Most people don't know the answer. And the Rambam says that the real answer is beyond human comprehension, meaning you can't understand it. Not because we are fools, but because we're human. And the answer requires you to be divine. But there are some answers. And this is what Rabbi Akiva is trying to teach us here. So first and foremost, he's telling us, everything is foreseen. Meaning that everything and anything that happens, anything that's happened in the past, anything that's happening in the present, and anything that's going to happen in the future, Hashem already knows. We said in last night's shiur, that when people have doubts about God, say, oh, maybe he's busy, maybe he's resting, maybe he's on vacation, maybe he's out of money. You know, it costs a lot of money to build the whole world, twice. They built it, they ruined it, Noah, everything, the boat. So maybe he ran out of money, maybe he can't give me panasas, so I have to work overtime, I have to work on Shabbat, I have to work on all these extra days. So people have a lot of excuses for why God can't do it. How many of us are actually making excuses of why He can? 
So there's only one excuse that you need to make. If God is God of the Torah, then He's God all the time. Not sometimes. If anyone wants to believe that we all came from a cell, like some of these scientists convince themselves, then you still have to answer the question of where did this first cell come from? Let's say the cell came, and it went through the process of mitosis, which splits the cell into two now. You have one, now you have two. Then it went through another mitosis or meiosis, whichever one they want to pick. Now it's two, went into four. And four became eight, and eight became 16, and so on and so forth. Eventually it became a monkey, or a lizard, or a fish, or whatever you want to pick as the first creation, or an amoeba. And somehow the amoeba turned into a human being, and I'm here today. Let's say all that happened. And the way they rationalize it is that it happened over a really, really long period of time that no one can prove. Fine, it happened. Let's say. We agree. No problem. Where did the first cell come from? The answer is that even the, their genius, Hawking's or any of these other geniuses, is that they don't know. They don't know. Throughout his career, Stephen Hawking's has changed his mind about whether there is an intelligent design or not, whether there's a God or not. Sometimes yes, sometimes no. So his God is sometimes there. Our God's always there. It's good news. So now, if, let's say, Stephen Hawking said today, you know what? I'm going back to the days of God. And he created the first cell. Now, if this is a God, why is he limited with just creating one cell? What kind of God is that? That's only, the only thing that he can do is create one cell. If the creation can create many more things than a cell, the creator has to be greater than the creation. Or else, he's not the creator. If there's a creator that created the first cell, there must be greater than the cell. So if he can create a cell, he can create everything. So if he's already creating everything, why is he just creating a cell? Might as well create everything. Why create the egg if you create the chicken? For what? That's, by the way, the answer for people that ask what came before, the chicken or the egg, the chicken. Two reasons. Number one, why would Hashem just create an egg? If there's a chicken, it's already made. And two, who's going to sit in the egg to make the chicken come out? The donkey? He's going to eat it. Adam Arishon? He's going to make chavita. He's going to make uh, omelet. So once we understand the first, first, first grade level, whether there's a God or not, there has to be a God. And if there's a God, He's always God, all the time, that already shows us that He has no limitations. He's beyond anything we can possibly imagine. Now... The next thing to understand is the following. One of the main things that people have a hard time with is understanding beyond the intelligence of the Greeks. The Greeks was supposed to be very smart. And they said, yes, we agree that there's a God. But he left. 
he came, he created, retired, went on a pension, was collecting from the IRS until they ran out of money. So they believe that God created the world, but he left. Unfortunately, today, there are many people, Jews and non-Jews, religious and not religious, ultra, 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 ultra orthodox, that are makpidim on the smallest, tiniest things, that believe God doesn't care. Many, many people that are ultra frum, ultra religious, question whether God actually cares about the small stuff. Obviously, someone that's not religious, who doesn't believe in God at all, of course he doesn't think there's a God, so of course if there's no God, then of course he's not gonna, there's no God to care. Him we're not really worried about so far. Him we have to get him to actually believe in God in the first place. And then once he believes in God, it's very easy to show him that God cares. The problem is for us religious people, if the religious don't think that God cares about the big stuff and the small stuff, but what we think is big, and what really is big, then why should we do anything? <coughs> that mentality created Christianity. That mentality created the Sadducees. That mentality created the Reform. That mentality created conservative. That mentality is a disease that's a couple thousand years old that's been destroying us from within. Does God care? The good news is, you don't have to go too far. Loba Shamaimi. Hashem says, my Torah is not in heaven. It's here. You don't have to go too far. You have the answer. You go to the book of Jeremiah, and he tells you, who says it? God. So it's not even Jeremiah that says it. It's actual God actually says this. And he says, Translation, I am a God only from nearby. Or am I a God only from nearby? Says Hashem. And not a God from far? Meaning, am I God sometimes or all the time? Am I God that's like on vacation and I'll check in once in a while? Or am I here all the time? If I'm here all the time, and pay attention. Second thing he says, can a man hide in concealment that I not see him? Is there anything that you can do and hide from me? Can you take a drink without making a blessing of shakol and I'm not going to know about it? Can you look at a girl that's not yours inappropriately and Hashem is not going to write it in his book? Or like, unfortunately, like what many people think, can you waste seed? And I don't care. Do you know, in the holy books, it says that every time a man, seed comes out of his body. There is an angel that's responsible for each seed. And he brings the seed to Hashem. He says, Hashem, what will be with this one? 
What will be? Now, every scientist are estimating that each time a man ejaculates, it's approximately 300 million seeds. Whether it's 100 million or 100 or whatever the number is, is irrelevant. We all know it's a bunch. There's an angel that's responsible to bring this in front of Hashem and Hashem. Hashem, you've instilled a human being into the seed. A human being can come out of every one of these seeds. This human being can be a Sav or Yaakov. Both were the sons of the Gdolado. Yitzchak Avinu. Both had the same father. Both can say, my father was a big rabbi. You know, a lot of people tell me, my father was a big rabbi. My grandfather was a big rabbi. My great-grandfather wrote a book. He's a big rabbi. Okay, good. He's in Gan Then you may go to Gan If you were your father, but you're not. He's in Gan Eden. Not going to help you that your father go. Aesav, his father was also Gdolado. But the Gemara Masechet Sanhedrin says, Aesav, has no share of the world to come. But his father was Gdolado. Yaakov, that's where Am Yisrael comes from. So each seed could be Aesav or Yaakov. The angel comes to Hashem and he says, which one is it going to be? Who? Is it going to be something? Is it not going to be something? Is this someone going to be tall? Is he going to be short? Is he going to be rich? Is he going to be poor? Is he going to be ugly? Is he going to be good looking? Is it going to be a she? Who is it going to be? Meaning that everything is instilled into that seed to give it the full potential to be the next Dolado. To be the next Mashiach. But Hashem decides on each seed, no, it's going to be nothing. It's going to stay, it's going to go to waste. But He decides. Many people think that Hashem doesn't care about the seed, but this holy books are saying otherwise. If Hashem cares enough to decide what's it going to be, obviously He cares. Which is the reason why as early as Parashat Noach, He told us that wasting seed is not even allowed for the Goim, let alone for the Jews. So now, Hashem is here is telling us, is there such a thing as you making a, a sin in concealment, in hiding, in the bathroom, in the bedroom, in the office, behind closed doors, when it's night, when it's midnight, when your wife's not looking, when your husband's not looking, when no one's looking. Is there such a thing as me not looking? Is there such a thing? There was one time a guy, a Haredi guy, he was walking around. The shul that he was going to happened to be right at the end of where the Yeruv was. So the Yeruv, the line of the Yeruv, was right there. And everyone knew where the Yeruv was. On Shabbat, you're not allowed to take things in and out of the Yeruv. But as the test would be, his hat flew off of his head and fell right outside of the line of the Yeruv. According to Allah, he's not allowed to touch it. It's outside of the Yeruv, stays there. On the floor, whatever happens to it, you cannot touch it. It could burn up, it could stay there, someone could take it. It has 
he has no permission whatsoever to do anything with it. Why? It's outside of the Yeruv. But what does he do? Quickly, before anyone sees, he grabs it, puts it back on. So the rabbi saw. He says, let me ask you a question. You grabbed it really fast. You knew that there's a chance that one of us is going to see you. Hundreds of people coming to Beknesset right now. You're not the only one. You're not alone. It's not night. Why did you grab it so fast? Did you think for a second that maybe God's not going to see it? Did you think for a second that if you do it really fast, maybe God's not going to care? Like He cares if you do it fast or slow? Like if you do it really fast, ah, it's no big deal. Like if you just light the cigarette really quickly, one puff, throw it out and it's finished, no big deal on Shabbat. If you cheat on your wife for two seconds, one, two, three, you finish, you go back to your wife, honey, I love you. That's okay? If you walk around not modest for five minutes, not the whole day, five minutes a day, five minutes a day you decide to walk naked. It's okay? It's only five minutes, 24 hours in a day. It's okay? You do the percentage, it's a very small percentage. What, God's not going to care? This is what this pasuk is all about. This pasuk is telling us, is there such, a, such an existence, such a thought, that there's such a thing that can happen in this world without me seeing it? And then he consider, continues, the word of Hashem, do I not fill the heaven and the earth, the word of Hashem? In so many words, he's telling us, if there's such a thing of me not seeing it, there's also such a thing of me not being there. And that cannot be. Because I fill the whole world. When Jews cry for money because they don't have enough panasah or they want more than what they really need, Hashem says, God says, Mine is the money, mine is the gold. Hashem, master of legions. What does it mean, mine is the money, mine is the gold? It's all mine. The money that's in your pocket's mine. In the bank, it's mine. The IRA is mine. The stock market is mine. The money you want is mine. Everything is mine. You want me to give you some? Ask nicely. Give me a reason. Do you want more money so you could buy a fancier car so you could be a Mechalel Shabbat? Or do you want more money so you give more tzedakah so you could publicize my Torah? What do you need the money for? And Rabbi Akiva is already telling us the freedom of choice is given. Despite the fact that Hashem knows that sometimes He's going to give us much and we're going to do things against Him, He still gives us the ability to choose. He gives us the ability to choose to such an extent that Chazal says when a person decides on something, Hashem helps him regardless of what the choice is. Whatever the choice is, if he wants to be holy, Hashem will help him become holy. In Parashat Kedoshim, Hashem says, be holy because I am holy. So if you want to be holy, Hashem will help you. You want to be a Rasha? Hashem will help you too. Whatever you want. You have free choice. But just know the beginning. I know. I know it's going to happen. Whatever you're going to do, I know. Why is it important to know that Hashem knows? Because the next part of the Mishnah says, the world is judged with goodness. Meaning, 
few things. First and foremost, when you make the mistakes, whether it's violating Shabbat or any of the other sins that are in the Torah, know that when Hashem says goodness here, or Rabbi Akiva says goodness, Meiri says it means tshuva. Hashem created the world with a concept of tshuva. And the reason why is because he realized that without tshuva, the world cannot exist. The world cannot survive without tshuva. So, the first thing that we learned from Hashem in uh, the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 6, verse 13, is Hashem says, gives us one of the key mitzvot, which is to fear Him. Fear Hashem. Interesting, I learned from one of my students. He says, look, 6.13, chapter 6, verse 13. Meaning, you can't fulfill the 613 commandments without fearing Hashem. It's a nice chidush. So here Hashem tells us, one of the major mitzvot, one of the 613 mitzvot is for you to fear me. It's a very important mitzvah to such an extent that without fearing Hashem, you cannot connect to Him. So, for all of those that believe that you can connect to Hashem through love, Chazal explains to us that fear with fearing Hashem without loving Him is an incomplete connection. It's a connection nonetheless, but it's incomplete. Ideally, you want to be like Moshe Rabbeinu. Ideally, you want to be like Aaron Cohen. David Melech, Avram Avinu, they feared Hashem and they loved Him. Ideally. So if you only fear Him, it's not enough. But it's a connection. Loving Hashem without fear is no connection at all. It's zero. Why? It's impossible to love Him without fearing Him. Because in order to love someone, you have to know what it is and who it is. Once you know what and who Hashem is, immediately you're scared. He's in control of all of the cells in your body. He's in control of your health. He's in control of your panasa. He's in control of your kids. He's in control of everything. The only thing He's not in control over is whether you fear Him or not. That's your free choice. So whenever anyone asks you, what is free choice? Do I really have free choice? The Torah says, yes, you have one single free choice. Whether you're going to fear God or not. That's your only free choice. Everything else has nothing to do with you. Everything else has nothing to do with you. You say, wait, wait, whether I decide to drive on Shabbat, that's my choice. Yes, exactly, that has to do with fearing God or not. If you drive on Shabbat, you don't fear God. If you don't drive on Shabbat, you fear God. Yeah, but what about if I decide to choose one profession or another? That also has to do with free choice. That profession can be a sniper for the mob, or you can be a sniper for the army. You can either kill people for money, or you can protect people. One has no fear, the other one has fear. Even though they're both technically the same job as far as the actual action. One guy can have hunger for blood and be a surgeon. Some people are created with some type of desire to see blood. It says in the Zohar Kadosh, they have a desire to see blood. Me on the other hand, I see blood, I cringe. So I have the opposite. It doesn't help me. 
but some people see blood for whatever, however it makes them feel, it satisfies them to some extent. So with that inclination that Hashem put in you, you could decide to be a surgeon, save people's lives. Or you could be a butcher, give people kosher food. Or you could be a murderer. All three do the same thing. But two show fear of God. One doesn't. Your only free choice is whether you fear God or not. To love Him without fearing Him is impossible. Because as soon as you understand that He's in control of all things in your life, the hair on your head, the uh, car you drive, the parnasa you get, the parnasa you end up uh, not getting, the contracts, the deals, the clients, the children, the husband, the wife, all of those things is decided by Him. And He already knew it before you even realize it exists. And this is what Rabbi Akiva is first telling us in the first part of the Mishnah. Is that know this, everything that you're going to do, Hashem already knows. He already knows before you're going to do it. So now to answer the question, if He knows it, why would He punish us if we make a sin? The Rambam asked the same question. In Parashat Pinchas, this week's parasha, we already learned from previous parashot that Chazal tells us that by the time we arrived to Mount Sinai, Am Yisrael went from the 49th level of Tum'ah, impurity and sin, to the 49th level of Kedusha. We went from one end to the other. We became the holiest we've ever been at Mount Sinai. We've never been that holy again. Since then it's been downhill. Chazal says that the reason why Hashem took us out of Egypt at 49 is because if we reached the level of 50 in Egypt, since we did not have the Torah, He couldn't save us. Meaning one more sin, and He'd have to destroy the world. Same thing like He did with Noah. So He had to take us out at that very moment, before the next guy makes a sin. One guy makes a sin, end of the world. This is why Chazal teaches us, each person needs to view himself appropriately by saying that the next mitzvah that I make puts Am Yisrael on the good side of God at 50% plus one mitzvah. Or my next sin puts Am Yisrael, Hashem Elachem, at the bad side. My first, my next sin, my next mitzvah, my next action can change the tides. Either bring a good decree or a bad decree on the entire nation. So what do you do after you make a mitzvah? You say, oh, we'll back somebody else, probably made an avirah, so we'll probably at 50% again. So I need to make another mitzvah. And another mitzvah, another mitzvah, another mitzvah. We're always at 50%. My next action is going to change the tides. So now, no one knew when they were in Egypt that the next thing could easily bring their own doom. Except Hashem. Hashem took him out and he brought him to Mount Sinai. Oh, Kadosh says that at the end of times, right before the Mashiach comes, unfortunately, Am Yisrael is going to reach the 50th level of Tumah. It's going to be worse than it's ever been. Looking at the world around us, 
It's not so hard to imagine anymore. When you have people celebrating wars against God on a day-to-day basis, it's not hard to imagine that we've already reached 50% a long time ago. To me, I think maybe Allah Chaim was conservative. I think we're going to reach 100. Because seriously, you look at the things that happened today, you compare them to the past, we're much worse. Everything you can name, anything, and you can see something wrong with it. Religious world, irreligious world, everything. There's something wrong everywhere. And it's not just something wrong with our ways. It's just something wrong with the morality of the world, the way we think, the way we view things. It's like we've somehow been rewired. But this is all prophetized. This is all in the Gemara Masichet Sotah, page 49. It says that at the end of time there's going to be certain signs. One of the signs is going to be a lot of chutzpah. A lot of chutzpah, people are going to do things that are specifically against the Torah on purpose. So now, this very same Am Yisrael, that reached 49th level of Tusha, the highest level ever. Okay, they made a sin, golden calf, made a mistake, fine. Made a bunch of mistakes, fine. But it's still the same holy nation. Maybe they're not at 49 anymore, they're 48, or 47, or 46, or 42, but they're much better than us for sure. This very same nation, in last week's parasha, at the end of parashat Balak, made a fatal mistake. A mistake that Hashem said, this crossed the line, I'm going to destroy the world. What was the mistake? They decided to get a bunch of non-Jewish girlfriends. After Bil'am tried to curse Amisled three times and it didn't work, he told Balak, listen, there's a thing that you can do, you don't even need me. You want to beat them? Just send your girls over there. That was his idea? That was Bil'am's idea. And he sends, Balak sends not only all the girls to the camp of Amisled, but on top of it, he sends his own daughter. And they all go to the camp of Am Yisrael. And unfortunately we sin. They accept them. And they start sinning with them. And Hashem, without warning, for the first and last time in history, Hashem starts killing us. Every other time He's punished us in history, He warned us. This is the one and only time in history that Hashem did not warn us. Even the evil, rotten generation of Noah used to kill each other, used to steal from each other, used to waste seed, used to be homosexuals, used to go with their animals. I mean, there was no sin they didn't do. He gave them over a hundred years of warnings. hundred years, Noah is making a teva. What are you doing in the middle of the city? Making a teva. Why are you making a teva? Hashem is going to destroy the world. A hundred years they're getting warnings. Sodom and Gomorrah, many warnings. The generation of Mitzrayim, many warnings. What happened there? Before Mitzrayim, after Mitzrayim, during Mitzrayim. Here, we got the Torah. We made a few mistakes along the way, but we're still a nation. We still have Moshe Rabbeinu. Hashem says you crossed the line. You 
crossed the line and he starts killing us. Destroying us with a plague that within moments kills over 24,000 people. 24,000 people exactly, it says actually. 24,000 die within moments and the only reason it stops, as it says in the beginning of this week's parasha, Hashem spoke to Moses saying, Pinchas, the son of Elazar, the son of Aaron, the Kohen, turned back my wrath, meaning because of him I stopped. Turned back my wrath from upon the children of Israel when he zealously avenged my vengeance among them. So I did not consume the children of Israel in my vengeance. Chilitiotam means consume, meaning destroy the entire nation. So here we knew what was on the line. Before, we didn't know. When we were making sins with the non-Jews, we didn't know. When we were in Egypt and the next sin could have brought us to the 50th level of Tumah, we didn't know. The people of Sodom and Gomorrah didn't know that if they would have had just a few tzaddikim in town, Hashem wouldn't have destroyed them. Just a few. The people of Israel that keep trying to draft all of the Avrechim from the Kolos to the to Tzal, to IDF, they don't know that the only reason IDF and the rest of the country exists is because of the very same people that are in the Kolos. The people in America that are constantly trying to motivate their kids to go into the business world and leave the yeshiva world or just study for a little bit but just go be an accountant, go be a doctor, Go be a lawyer. Go be rich. Go be this. Go be that. Torah on the side. Torah sometimes. Torah is a hobby. They don't realize the only reason this country exists is because there has to be something but Judah benefits out of it. Has to be. To such an extent that the Zohar Kadosh says there could be an entire structure, an entire building built by some sheikh, some, some sheikh from uh, Saudi Arabia in the middle of the desert middle of the desert, he can build a huge monstrosity, billion dollar building. Why? Because maybe one day a Jew will get the shade from it. Not because Hashem cares about what's in the building, who works in the building, what comes out of the building, none of that. Maybe one day a righteous Jew will get shade from this building. But we're so worried about sending our kids to go be doctors and lawyers and everything else except by the, you know, people that actually learn Torah. Why? Because we don't understand what Torah actually means. We have no idea that the only reason this world exists is for the Torah, not for the other way around. But now Pinchas is telling us that despite us having this Torah, Hashem said, all bets are off. I'm destroying all of you. Every other time He warned us. He said, listen, you have a few tzaddikim? Don't worry about it. We'll let this one go. Okay, Moshe Rabbeinu is praying for you. I'll let this one go. I'll let this one go. I'll let this one go. A million times he let this thing go. Here he said, no, you crossed the line. And if it wasn't for Pinchas ben Elazar ben Aaron Cohen, I would have destroyed all of you. Why? Why? We answered this question, the question and answers yesterday, but it's a good answer and it's a good question. The reason why is because in the sin of, let's say, the golden calf, Hashem came to Moses and he said to them, let me destroy them and start a new nation from you. Moshe said, destroy me and not them. But destroy me first. Erase me from your book. 
I don't want to be the prophet that comes to Shemaim, sees Avraham, Yitzhak, and Yaakov, and says, oh, he's the leader that destroyed the nation. Why? The leader gets the blame, not the people. You never say, hey, the Americans are a bunch of losers. You say, no, no, the president's a loser. If they're winning, oh, the president won. The president lost. They always blame the guy. When a company misses earnings, when I was in the investment business, company misses earnings one too many times, what happens? CEO gets fired. Like he's the one that made all the mistakes. It's all his fault. The guy never went into a Starbucks before in his life. The guy is in the office night and day. We said, no, he missed the earnings. It's all his fault. They have 80,000 employees. It's all his fault. Yeah, it's his fault. Somebody has to go under the bus. The leader is the first one. Leader gets fired. That's why you see many companies that are struggling. They switch CEOs like a, uh, you know, it's a... It's, it's a they're changing shirts, exactly. Why? Because they have to keep investors hopeful. This is the new guy. This is the new Mashiach. This guy's going to change it. No, the 8,000 people are going to change it that work for the company. He, maybe he's going to direct them in a certain direction, but it's really them. You have to motivate them. So here, at Mount Sinai, Moshe Rabbeinu said, I don't want to be that leader. They say, oh, they all died under your leadership. So wipe me out of your Torah first. Shem says, okay, I don't want to kill you. You didn't make any sins. I just want to see if you're really going to step up for the people. And you did. That's what made him a leader. But he gave him a warning. The sins we made and the tests we give, gave Hashem, ten tests that Hashem testifies to, he constantly gave us warnings. And he never put us to the point where we almost destroyed us. Those punishments, those horror, few people died, but it was never did he say that I almost destroyed all of them until here. Why? With the golden calf, we left the Shem, but we as a nation stayed intact. Hashem says, leave me, but not my Torah. It should be the opposite. Leave the Torah, not me. Hashem says, no, leave me, but not my Torah. Why? You can leave me for now, but the Torah is going to bring you back home. But if you leave the Torah, you're going to eventually leave me anyway. Without Torah, there's no God. Whatever God someone believes in, if it's not from a Torah, it's not God. It's someone else. It's someone that's limited. If you believe in God, but you don't believe in a Torah, it's not God. It's someone else. Many people say, no, no, I need, but I need the Tibalev. I'm religious in my heart. I said, okay, so what do you believe in? You, what's, what's this religion that's in your heart? He goes, no, I believe in the same God you do. I said, okay, so the same God that I have said that if you... Drive on Shabbat, smoke a cigarette on Shabbat, you're actually saying he doesn't exist. He said it. So that's the God you believe in? He goes, no, no, my God didn't say that. Like, oh, so it's a different God. Okay, so good luck with your God. Another guy says, listen, I uh, believe in God, but I don't know, I think maybe I need to work on Shabbat, or I need to work in an illegal business, or I need to overcharge my customers, or I need to do all types of things that are frowned by God. I need to cheat. 
the Maser program. You know, they say give Maser, give 10% of my salary to Tzedakah, to Torah. You know, he gives like 10% of 10%. Why? Because well, maybe I'm not going to have next month. I'm like, oh, so your God doesn't have any money. Your God's broke. My God's rich. My God's better. So it keeps going back to my God being better. Everyone else's God, something else. They're always limited. They always don't have money, these gods. They always have no money. They're always broke. They're always not able to heal us. Oh, God gave me this test. Why did He give me this test? What's the test? Oh, you have health problems. Okay. So what, God can fix it? He can fix it. No, but the doctor said that I only have uh, a year. So what, God can't change what the doctor said? This is where we have to get to. Understanding that the God of Israel is not limited. He can do anything. Anything. They can tell you, you have an hour to live. He can still give you 120 years. They could tell you that you are overdraft by $25,000 in your bank account. You can still make sure all your bills are paid without a question. <coughs> How? That's his problem. You just have to believe in him. So God said, at the golden calf, you left me, but you stayed together. You stayed with the Torah. You made some mistakes, but I didn't destroy you. The problem is, with the sin, sin of Pinchas, it was not just going against me. It was not just going against the Torah. It was destroying the nation. Because any time a Jew is with a non-Jew, the outcome is a non-Jew. If the husband is a Jew and the wife is a non-Jew, the outcome is a non-Jew. If the husband is a non-Jew and the wife is a Jew, the halacha is that the child is a Jew. But there are opinions in the Gemara that he's not a Jew. There are opinions in the oral Torah that he's not a Jew. He has to go through conversion if he wants to be a Jew, the child. But aside from that, in reality, the child will not be a Jew. Even if the mom is a Jew. Why? He's confused. Abba, as a Christmas tree, as a Hanukkah. Which one do I pick? So what happens with the product of intermarriage? Atheists. He says Hanukkah, she says Christmas. Psst, they're both wrong. I'm picking neutral. They become atheists. They become nothing. They become agnostic is what they call it. No, we're friends with everyone until they go against us. So now, the product is destruction. Hashem says, if you're going to breed destruction, I might as well speed it up for you. Just like I help you with your mitzvot, you want to be holy, I help you become holy. You want to destroy, I'll help you destroy. Pinchas put a stop to it. Going back to our original question, if anyone remembers the original question. If God already knew this was going to happen, why did He punish us? 
If he knew we're going to do this, he knew that Balak and Bilam are going to talk, Bilam is going to try something, it's not going to work, then they're going to try something else, and that's going to work, we're going to sin, Pinchas is going to stop it, why even, why even kill them? As a matter of fact, in the Gemara Masechet Sanhedrin, page 44, it actually says that Pinchas, after he killed Zimri and Cosby, he threw their bodies, and he screamed at Hashem, Hashem, for this, for these two, you killed 24,000 people? These two sinners, you killed 24,000 of your children? And that's why the Gemara says, that's why Pinchas got the blessing he did. It wasn't that he was just zealous for Hashem and protecting his honor. He was also zealous for his people too. That is the sign of a righteous rebuke. There are two ways to rebuke people. There's a good way and there's a bad way. There's a way that brings honor to Hashem's name and there's a way that desecrates Hashem's name. The mistake we have today is there's a huge misunderstanding of what nice or good or honor of Hashem means versus harsh. Most people think that if you're rebuking somebody by telling them that a mechalel Shabbat, according to God, it means a death penalty, or it means they're putting their Judaism on suspension, or it means that they're not allowed to say Kaddish. No one's allowed to say Amen to their Kaddish. You can't drink their wine if they touch the wine. And a lot of other horrible things. They can't be a Baal Koreh. They can't be a Chazan in the Bet Knesset. They're removed from Judaism. They're removed from any holy ceremony. They can attend if they want, but no one's allowed to say amen to any of their blessings. Why? Because they're considered, according to Allah, 100% an idol worshiper. Now a goy that brings a korban to the Bet HaMikdash, we take his korban. Take his korban, sacrifice it. A mechalel Shabbat that brings the korban to Bet HaMikdash, we don't take it. Because he's worse than a goy. The guy is holy. Goy wants to bring korban. Shecha. As long as you're not an idol worshiper. Take the korban. No problem. But a Jew that desecrates Shabbat can't take his korban. So now this is a problem. So people think that if you tell this to people, this is harsh. They say the truth hurts and truth's too harsh. Say something else. Lie. Now, we said yesterday, nice example. If someone saw their child break something, they tell them, stop, lightly. But if they saw the child ran to the electric socket with a fork, they're not going to say, stop it, honey, nicely. They're going to run, move everything out of the way. It doesn't matter if the whole house breaks. They're going to do whatever they can to stop the kid from doing it. Even if they have to tackle the child. Why? It hurts. Why are you going to tackle your child? Maybe he's going to break a hand. Maybe he's going to break a leg. Maybe he's going to do this. At least he's going to live. At least he's going to live. So when Hashem says, someone that's violates Shabbat, is considered an idol worshiper. He's saying it. It's not the rabbi that said it. The sages just wrote what God said. 
You could look in Parashat Kitisa. You could put Parashat Kitavo. You could look at 12 different places in the Torah. It says the significance of the sin of violating Shabbat and many, many other sins. But specifically with Shabbat being the worst of it all. So now, if you tell this to someone, you're doing them a favor. Whether they like it or not, it's their business. Whether they listen to it or not, it's their business. But at least now, we have a 50% chance that they may listen. Before you told them, there was a 0% chance of them listening because you didn't say anything. So there was a 0% chance of them changing. Without information, people don't change. Now we officially have 50% chance. It may be 50% that he's just not going to do it. Nothing's going to change. But at least now it's 50%. It's going to bother him. Next time he drives the car, it's going to bother him. Next time he loses money on Shabbat, he's going to blame Shabbat. He's going to, something's going to touch him. It's going to bother him. Why? Because you did him a favor. But many people say, no, no, this is harsh. Let it be harsh. But it's still, at least he's going to live. At least he's going to live. To say that you're not going to tell him because you're trying to be nice, you're not going to tell him because you don't want to offend him, you don't want to turn him off. Like a lot of people say, no, no, I don't want to tell my people to all these things of what actually the Torah says because I don't want to turn them off. The problem is that you can't turn off something that's not on. If he's not keeping anything, he's not on to be turned off. The fact that he's showing up to Beknesset doesn't mean he's on. It just means he comes to gather just like he does at a bar, at a sports club, at work, and any other place. He has a bunch of friends. There he goes. It's a social club. So, to say that I'm being nice and therefore I'm not saying it, there's also a Gemara for them. In the Gemara Masechet Shabbat, page 54, the sages ask Hashem, God, why did you punish the rabbis before the wicked people when you destroyed the Bet HaMikdash? Why? You would think the Torah, the significance of the Torah, the only reason this world exists is for us to fulfill this Torah. You would think the people that study it would have privilege, VIP, this is not only not VIP, you destroy them first. This is a contradiction. The Shekhinah, which in essence is like a voice of Hashem, responded. They weren't Sadiqim. The rabbis, they weren't Sadiqim. Why? Why were they not considered tzaddikim to get this special privilege, VIP, of protection, like Chizkiyahu, a melech? Remember last week we said a story about Chizkiyahu. Chizkiyahu, there was millions of people waiting at his door to destroy him. He said, okay, I finished my daf gemara, I'm going to sleep. Millions of people at his door, they want to kill him. He says, okay, good night. But there's people with swords, atomic bombs outside your door, they want to kill you. Okay, good night. He's going to sleep. Why he's going to sleep? He says, I learned my Torah. I'm going to sleep. Hashem says, if I learn his Torah, everything's going to be okay. I went to sleep. I woke up in the morning. They're all dead. Took us a few days to bury them. Why did he do it for him and not for the people of the Bet Why? Why? What happened? He got everybody to keep Shabbat. 
he put a sword on the ground and he said, anyone who doesn't learn Torah, leave everything, learn Torah, I'm going to kill him with the sword. The entire nation became Avrichim. Everyone learned Torah. To such an extent that six-year-old little babies, six-year-olds still babies, they knew the entire Mishnah by heart. Chizkiyah Omelech got to a point when they buried him. The Gemara in Moed Katan says, they buried him with a Sefer Torah. Why they buried him with a Sefer Torah? They said the Sefer Torah is holy, Chizkiyah is holy. Same thing. Same thing. Sefer Torah, same thing as Chizkiyah. Sefer Torah falls, everyone has to fast. Sefer Torah Hashem falls, everyone has to fast. Sefer Torah is holy of holies. Chizkiyah, holy of holies. Same thing. So they asked, the Gemara asked, so the rabbis from the Bet HaMikdash, they did Korbanot, they did this, they did this. Why didn't you protect the Hashem? He says, they weren't Tzadikim with Chizkiyahu. Why they weren't Tzadikim? They didn't rebuke the people, tell them to keep Shabbat. When you don't rebuke the people, Gemara says, you take the sin yourself. You're a sinner just like them. So the nice way, the nice approach... I don't want to tell him because I don't want to turn him off. There's a Gemara for you. The Gemara is, you're also the sinner. You're going to go up to Shamayim and say, oh, I kept Shabbat 50 years, 60 years, 70 years. Like, no, you didn't keep one Shabbat. Bechlan. One Shabbat you didn't keep. Like, what do you mean? I went to lecture, I heard Shabbat, I went. He goes, yeah, but your wife, she didn't keep Shabbat, you never told her one thing. Your son didn't keep Shabbat the whole life, you didn't tell him one thing. Your neighbor didn't keep Shabbat, you didn't tell him one thing. All these people, their Chilu Shabbat goes on you. Why? You didn't tell one thing. Nobody didn't want to turn them off. Okay, you don't want to turn them off. Now we're going to turn all of you on and get them together. It's on permanently. So this is one of the things we have to understand. Pinchas, Ben Elazar, Ben Aonakoim knew the significance. He knew that yes, Hashem knows that we can sin. He knows we can sin. But he still gives us a choice of whether we're going to sin or not. The fact that he knows of what we're going to do is irrelevant. It doesn't change our choice. Example is two things. One, if let's say, for example, you knew that someone was starving. You knew someone was starving. They need to eat. They're starving. And you have two things in front of them. Two options. One, you have a sandwich, tuna, steak, whatever you like. The other is a hammer. One table has a hammer, the other one has a sandwich. Which one is he going to pick? Sandwich, right? You don't have to be a genius. So did you, the fact that you knew that he's going to pick the sandwich, did that change his choice? You know that's what he's going to do. His inclination made him, give him a predisposition to pick the sandwich. You knew his inclination. You knew he was hungry. He said, I'm hungry. There's two choices, a hammer and a sandwich. You knew he's going to pick that sandwich. Didn't change his choice. That's God. The fact that he knows what you're going to pick doesn't change anything. Even more so, Rav Mizrahi in one of his uh, shulim says a really good example. He says, if let's say, for example, you wrote everything on a piece of paper, I wrote everything on a piece of paper, of what you're going to do tomorrow? All the things you're going to do tomorrow, and I said, put it in an envelope, don't look at it, put it in an envelope, 
close the envelope, only look at the envelope at the end of tomorrow. You go through the next day, you do what you have to do, you open the envelope at the end of the day, you see that everything that you did during that whole day was already written on a paper by me the day before. Did me writing it, me knowing it, change your choice? Change your day? No. Nothing changed. So the fact that I knew is irrelevant. Now, what's the hard part? What's the part that's impossible for a human being to understand? The Rambam explains in Ilchot Shuva and also in Shmona Prakim that to us, we have a difficulty understanding God and free choice only because we bound God to time. Because we are bound to time. We are bound to time. We know that we have a past, we have a present, we have a future. We have things we want to do, we have things we need to do, we have things that we've already done, we have goals, we have aspirations. Everything we do is tied to time. A time to eat, a time to go to the bathroom, a time to be with the wife, a time to be with the kids, a time to go to work, and so on. Everything is bound to time. God, on the other hand, makes time. He created time. He's not bound to time. So any time you bound, you bind God to time, he's not God. He's a human being. So for us, thinking of free choice, us for us, free choice is connected to time. So when we think of free choice, we think free choice is what I'm gonna do in a, what I did in the past, what I'm gonna do in the future, and what I'm doing right now. It's all connected to time. Since God is not connected to time, all three of them are the same. To Him, it's all the same. He sees the past, the present, and the future all at the same time. It's all the same thing to Him. This is why He tells the Prophet, My thoughts are not your thoughts. They're not like... This is the prophet Isaiah, chapter 55, and he actually says some things that, if you take it into account, you could begin to understand who this God that we fear is. He says, chapter 55, verse 8, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, and your ways are not my ways. The word of Hashem. As high as the heavens are over the earth, are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts over your thoughts. If you didn't understand it the first time when he said, my thoughts are not like your thoughts, he gives you a little more details. He says, the distance between where you are to the heavens is not even enough to measure the distance between your thoughts and my thoughts. If you think of a solution, that's not what I'm thinking. Whatever solution you think is going to happen, most likely is not going to happen. Stop giving me ideas. 
Because my idea, you can't think of. You can't think of my idea. I'll give you an example. I tell people that I live a life of miracles. And we see it all the time. Anytime someone has a emunah issue, I tell them, listen, call me. If it's really urgent, call me. Most people call me, it's not really urgent, but they tell me it's urgent. Which is the reason I don't ever pick up the phone until I know for sure it's urgent. <laughs> there's too many phone calls. I mean, I love it, people, but there's too many phone calls. Baruch Hashem, but just, I can't I talk to every single person that calls. You're never going to actually get to studying and actually have shiurim. It's going to be here the same shiur every week. No, come on, 50 weeks in a row, same shiur. I said, yes, yeah, the phone calls. <laughs> so, one time, we had a... Uh, bills come. You know, that happens once a month. And my wife tells me, we're still living in New York, and my wife tells me, honey, we need $6,000 by tomorrow. I said, okay, good, so pay it. I, I stopped looking at the bank account. After losing millions and millions of dollars, you tend to not want to look at the bank account anymore. Now, I didn't realize there's zero in the bank. My wife knew. There's zero in the bank. So I was focusing on learning my Torah. I was focusing on Hashem. What do I care about money? But the world has money, so what are you going to do? It happens. This thing called Bill shows up every month, even though you tell him, don't come back, don't come back. He keeps coming back. <laughs> it's always on time. Same time every month. So anyway, so my wife tells me, honey, we need $6,000 by tomorrow. I said, okay, honey, so pay it. She goes, honey, we don't have it. I said, okay, so how much we're missing? She said, the whole 6,000. I said, okay, so... Hashem, now it's your problem. What am I going to do? It's your problem. We start talking, my wife and I, I'm talking, I'm like, listen, Hashem made enough miracles for us. We're, listen, we're trying to do His will. He brought us this far, what, to destroy us? Not a moment passes... Me finishing the sentence. We're sitting, my wife, both of us, Baruch Hashem, had full emunah that things are going to be okay. We had no idea how. But we knew things are going to be okay. We're laughing at the situation that just not too long ago, this was like lunch money. Now, there's no money to pay bills. So, not a moment passes, I get a phone call from an unidentified number. For the, I don't know, maybe first and last time in my life, I actually pick up the phone. I usually don't pick up the phone if somebody, if I don't know the number. There's a lot of strange people in the world. So you can't just pick up any phone. And I pick up. And the guy on the other phone says, Hey, I've been looking for you. Achi. Oh, he's Israeli. Achi. How are you? How's everything? I'm like, fine, Baruch Hashem. Who is this Bechlal? Oh, it's Dudu. Dudu. Who's Dudu Bechlal? Oh, you remember Dudu from eight years before. Eight years I haven't heard from this guy. He's like, listen, I'm really, really sorry that I never paid you back the money that you lent me. Please give me your bank account. I'm going to the bank now. I said, eight years he didn't answer a phone call. Eight years he disappeared. Eight years, the $5,000 that I gave him magically evaporated into the sun. 
Now he calls me. I said, okay, maybe he's going to actually do it. I said, yeah, it's my bank. I sent him a text. He's like, thank you, thank you. Hangs up the phone. Moments later, or whatever, an hour later, I get a text from him. Oh, the money is deposited. I look at my bank account online. I see the $6,000. I gave him five. He gave me six. I call him back. I said, I'm sorry. I can't take interest. It's against the law of God. This God that I'm connected to now, I can't take interest. He goes, no, chas v'shalom, I know. I watch, I watch you. I see you online. I see some of the things you do. I see some of the Zikwe Rabim. You send a book to my friend and this and that. I want to give you a $1,000 present to help you do Zikwe Rabim. Exactly $6,000. Shows up in the bank. Machshevotechem, lo machshevotai. Your thoughts, not my thoughts. I thought, okay, maybe I'm going to rob a bank. Maybe I'm going to go beg for change. Maybe I'm going to ask my brother for a loan. Maybe I'm going to ask my father. All these different things you ask. Oh, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. All million and a half different options. Hashem says it's not even one of my options. I'm going to give you the money from eight years ago that you forgot about. You forgot about the money, I'm going to give you that money. The money you forgot about, that's the one I'm going to give you. This is one of the things we have to start understanding. The more you live with that understanding, the more likely you are to actually see these miracles with your own eyes. And the reason why I say see Him is only if you believe in Him is simply because if you don't believe in it, you're always going to make an excuse for it. Meaning, if someone doesn't believe in miracles, someone doesn't believe that God controls everything, then when amazing things happen that are beyond the natural, you're always going to make an excuse. No, no, he was probably, I don't know, he was probably in town and someone told him about you. They're always going to make an excuse and rationalize the miracles. Oh, it's raining red. Yeah, no, it's probably the uh, air. No, it never rained red before. Yeah, it's probably the air from the pollution. They're always going to rationalize miracles. Now, nature... Nature, for example, we see rain. Last time you saw rain, did you make a blessing? Look at this rain, amazing. Technically, you're supposed to do a blessing every time you see rain, by the way. But most people don't, they forget, or they don't know. But at the very least, when you see rain, there's water coming from the sky. Now, above the sky, there's nothing. Now, if you go into outer space, there's nothing. There's no like, like you know, a uh, bucket full of water. And someone's pouring the bucket, and it goes into us. Nothing there. So it's kind of miraculous that there's water coming from the sky. And the water comes, and it's here in my tea. Now, last time you saw this water come from the sky, you say, wow, what a miracle. Anyone say, what a miracle? No one says, what a miracle. Why? We get used to it. We get used to it. So nature is miracles we got used to. That's all it is. So Hashem gave us the option of whether we're going to be amazed by His miracles or we're going to be ah, it's just supposed to happen, supposed to be this way. The world's supposed to function that way. People are supposed to be nice. They're supposed to be good. Good things happen to good people and all these nice things that people have. 
So here in this Mishnah, he's telling you, first thing first, everything that happens is under control. By who? By the one and only Creator. Right, thank you. So, the uh, first thing that Rabbi Akiva is telling us is that everything is under control. By what? By the Creator. Everything you've done, everything you're doing, and everything you will do, He knows. But He's not going to interrupt your choices. You still have free choice. But that free choice is limited to only one thing. Whether you fear Him or not. Everything else, whether you're going to be rich, poor, tall, short, ugly, pretty, whatever it is, up, that's up to him. After that, he tells you, The world is judged with goodness. So the first thing that Me'iri, one of the sages says, this is to signify that after you make your bad choices, with your free choice that you have, you're going to make some bad choices. Hashem created the world with goodness, meaning with mercy. He gave us an option to do tshuva. Why did he give us the option to do tshuva? Why? What's the benefit to him to give us the option to do tshuva? No, I'll give you a couple of guesses. Fidel, usually you have a couple of good ones. What benefit is it to Hashem to allow us to do tshuva? What benefit? Yeah, what's the to him? Where does he want us to do tshuva? If we do bad, destroy us. We do good. Chazak Baruch. Go to Gan Eden. Right away. Huh? To reward us. Why would why would why would giving us the ability to do tshuva reward us? Okay, but if you're good, you're rewarded. If you're not good, you get punished. What's what's the point of doing tshuva? Why does tshuva have to be in the way? Someone that's good from the start, okay, he gets rewarded. Someone that's not good. Beat him up. For correction? No, correction. You're in the right direction. For what? What's the purpose? What's the purpose of this tshuva? Right. How do we get to the next world? What do we need to do? We just said now. We need to connect to Hashem. You guys, you're saying all the right words. We just have to connect them. So I'm going to help you with connecting them because I already learned this. So the connection is he created the concept of forgiveness, the concept of tshuva, because with tshuva is the only way you could achieve the purpose. Purpose being yirat shamayim. Purpose being connecting to God. The only way you connect to God is with yirat shamayim. Now if there was no forgiveness, there would be no one to fear him either because we wouldn't survive a week. If there's no tshuva, eventually everyone's going to fail. So then there's going to be nobody left to fear him. And then there's going to be nobody else to eventually go from fearing to loving him. And then therefore, there's no one to reward. There's no one to benefit. He's going to be alone in Gan Eden. So the whole concept of tshuva is you can get to the next level, which is Yirat Shemaim. Why Yirat Shemaim? Because Yirat Shemaim is the first level of connection. Shlomo HaMelech said, Reshit Chochmah Yirat Hashem. The beginning of wisdom is fear of Hashem. It's the beginning of connecting to Hashem, the beginning. First time you can say, oh, I have some wisdom, I'm, because of, I'm scared of God. So the reason we're sent back over here for, in, you know, to a reincarnation is because it, for us to do correction. Right. Mercy. To us to do tshuva. 
So he wants us to do tshuva. How to do tshuva? Connect him. How do you connect to him? Start with fearing him. Escalate more and more up to the letter. Eventually, we would like to get to a point of loving him. But first, we have to go to basics. In this generation, I don't believe there's many people that are even able to get to a level of loving Hashem. And the reason why is because the concept of doing something for no reason is beyond us. Meaning, anything we do in this world, it's always because there's a benefit. People do things for some type of vested interest. No one does anything for nothing, including the people that give staka. They give staka, why? Because they want their name on the Bet Knesset. Because they want the people to know that they're a Baal Chesed. They want kavod from people. Not everyone, but many people give staka for that purpose. We go to work because we want to get paid. We get married because we want to have kids, plus we want to have a relationship with a woman in a righteous way. We get married to a husband because we want someone to provide to us. We do things because there's a benefit to it. Love, on the other hand, is something you do for no reason. Real love is free. Free. I love you for no reason. Who loved Hashem? Job. Job, who was not even Jewish, he was a Noahide, he says to Hashem Barach, he says to his friends, because Hashem Barach is always in the picture, he says to his friends, even if I knew that he would destroy me, I'd still serve him. Even if I knew that what I'm doing to honor him is destroying me, I'd still do it. That's for nothing. It says they debate. Did this mean that Job got to the highest level of fearing Hashem? Or was that the beginning of love? They debate which one it is. Point being, none of us are on that level. Why? We do what we do purely because we want Hashem to give us stuff. We do mitzvot because we want a lama ba. If you don't know what a lama ba is, then you say, I want to do mitzvot, so you give me a car. I want to do mitzvot, you give me a house. I want to give mitzvot, so I have a good husband, or a good wife, or good kids. You want stuff. The Rambam says, if you think the stuff that Hashem gives you, that's your reward, you're a fool. Why? Because the value of the smallest mitzvah, the smallest mitzvah of all of the mitzvot, we don't even know which one it is, but pick whatever mitzvah you want that you think is the smallest mitzvah. Pick some rabbinical mitzvah. Let's say Netilat Yedayim. Netilat Yedayim is not Deoraita. It's not from a Torah. It's rabbinical. So the rabbi said, it's good for you to wash your hands for a few reasons. Number one, Shlomo HaMelech implemented it at the Bet HaMikdash. That's where is the original source of Netilat Yedayim is Shlomo HaMelech. But the sages continued it because they said also there's benefits to Netilat Yedayim to purify your hands because there's Ruach Ra. There's evil things on your hands from different things that are impure that you touch to such an extent that there's actually several, several uh, famous stories from the Mekubalim of just the previous generations of people that didn't wash their hands and because they didn't wash their hands they ate uh, some type of fruit or vegetable or something and there was some type of Ruach Ra that went into them as a Dibuk. Dibuk is uh, beyond us in this generation, but it's something that uh, a different soul goes into an existing soul and creates a whole bunch of balagan. So it like, makes the person bipolar, does crazy things, and you know they, they made movies about this that are not exactly precise, but the point being is that you don't want anything to do with it. 
this is not the place and time to discuss the details of Dibukim, but the point being is that there is a significance to this mitzvah. Most people don't think it's a big deal. But let's say it's a small mitzvah. Small mitzvah. In Shemaim, the reward for this small rabbinical mitzvah is greater than all of the good, than all of the people that ever existed from the beginning of the world until the end of the world are ever going to get in this world. The reward for doing that mitzvah one time, once, is more significant than all of the good that everyone has ever gotten, ever. Good you can define as all types of pleasures, money, uh, pride, women, intimacy, whatever, whatever you think is good in the world, all of it that everyone had put together is not enough to pay for the smallest mitzvah one time. So we have no concept of the reward of Shemaim. This is the reason why the Sfarim HaKadoshim don't actually give many details about Olam Abba. There's not many details about what happens in the good part of the next world. There's a lot of details about the bad part. There's two parts of Olam Abba. Good one, bad one. One is nice, well, tzaddikim learning Torah and benefiting from the Shekhinah of Hashem. The other part is a little warm. So, so now, yeah, I figured. So now, Hashem is telling us that the concept of tshuva is for us to have this yirat shemayim, for us to have this connection with him, to at least begin somewhere. We have to fear him first. Eventually, Be'ezot get to love. The next part of this Mishnah is that in everything depends on the abundance of good deeds. So with all the things that are happening in the world, you see, there's a lot of bad in the world. There's disease, there is all types of wars against the Shem. There is all types of things that are not fun. Not fun to read about, not fun to live through. There's a war, either in the making or already happening. Despite the fact that people are in denial, anti-Semitism is very much alive and well everywhere, including America including our towns, including our cities, including our neighborhoods, including our neighbors, and sometimes including our friends. It's alive and well. Last week there was a young guy, that, a young Jewish guy that got murdered in Boca Raton. So I put it on my page in Facebook. Chaval, another, uh, another one of our brothers was murdered showing us that anti-Semitism is very much alive and well. So what were the responses that I got? You would think, oh, Baruch Dayan Ayemet, pray for him, who is he, do you know him? Something, you would think, like, you know, I'm sorry, something. What kind of responses did I get? 
from Jews, from Jews. How do you know his anti-Semitism? Do you have proof? This is what you're thinking about? Guy just died? This is what you're thinking about? Whether it's, if I have proof or not, if it's anti-Semitism? Yes, we have proof. It's called the Torah. The Torah has a law. The laws are from God. God doesn't change. And God said, Esav sonet Yaakov. Esav hates Yaakov. That is a law that he instilled in nature. Just like he instilled gravity, just like he instilled air, just like he instilled everything else. In nature, he also instilled hate inside Esav to hate Yaakov. Why? If he loves Yaakov, and he wants Yaakov to use this free choice that he has to sanctify Hashem's name. Why would he put something in his way? Why would he put something in Yaakov's way? We said earlier that he knows our free choice, but he doesn't get in the way. Right? We said he knows what we're going to do. He knows what's in the envelope. He knows what we're going to do tomorrow. He knows what we did yesterday. He knows what's going to happen. He knows. So why would he put a hurdle in our way? And the answer is because he knows that our free choice is not always the right choice. Our free choice sometimes is a mistake. Sometimes we choose wrong. And he wants to make sure to correct us. Because he loves us. So he says, Despite you seeing my words in Shemaim just weeks before Parashat Pinchas, you still went and sinned with the goyot. You still went and made sins against my Torah. Despite you knowing and seeing the Bet HaMikdash, seeing miracles every single day, you still sinned with murder, with stealing, with hating each other for no reason whatsoever, because one guy is Ashkenazi, the other one is Sephardi, and the other one is Yemenite, and the other one is Ethiopian. You hated each other for no reason. But you saw that God created all of you. He said, all of you are my people. All of you are chosen. All of you are my children. I love all of you. But he said, no, but I don't love him. Yeah, but he's your brother. But I don't like him. But he's your sister. And she's did. I don't care. I don't, but they're all my kids. How can you hate my kids? You saw it. He still sinned. Still sinned. And despite the pogroms and the inquisitions and the Holocaust, you still sinned to this extent that you wanted to be like the people that killed you. Many people don't know that during the Holocaust, the one thing that's unspeakable of is that there were actually Jews, there were some Jews in the Nazi army killing other Jews. We actually had a couple of shurim about this. You go to my page, you go on the Holocaust research, and you see my lectures about showing proofs that there were actually Jews that enlisted themselves, excited, faked their identities, faked their names, not because it's survival, but because they were more proud of being a German Nazi than being a Jew. They hated themselves for being Jewish. And this is from all walks of life. This is from reform, even to the extent that there's actually proof of one Orthodox guy. They enlisted into the army of the Nazis and they killed other Jews. 
you understand the significance of this? This shows us that when we're far away from God, there's not much difference between us and the animals. At least they're living on instinct. We have no excuse. So Hashem says, sometimes you're going to want to be like the killer. You're going to want to be like Esav. You're going to want to marry him. You're going to want to marry her. I have to stop it. Because the fact that you still want to do it when they hate you, when I instill the hate in them, imagine what you would do if they loved you. If all of the goyim erased anti-Semitism from their hearts, there will be no more Jews. Because we already want to be like them, Due to our distance from God, we want to be like the Goyim. We don't want to be chosen. We want them to be chosen. We don't want them to do the mitzvot. Let them do the mitzvot. Let somebody else do it. We just want to be like them. We want to be hip-hop stars. We want to be basketball players. We want to be football players. We want to be movie stars. We want to be singers. We want to do everything and anything except being... Little Avrech, learning Torah morning to night. Little Rambam goes to the doctor, works a few hours... But his main job in life is learning Torah. No one wants to do that. Everyone wants to do, no, no, I want to be 50 cent. I want to be Eminem. You know how many Balit Shuvah I have send me their rap songs? Look, look, I have this rap song. I have this rap song I made. And they make videos of their rap song. And, I mean, at least to their credit, they're rapping about God. Little white Jewish kid rapping about God. Sounds like Eminem just talks about God instead. It's cute. But you're still far away from home. The fact that you're still connected to it means you're still far away from home. You're far away from home. We still got to get you a little stronger. We still want to get you to a point where you don't want to do that. We still got to get you to a point where you want to sing, you want to sing to God, but not in a certain style because of anything else, but because it's coming from your heart to connect to God through His Torah, not through your logic, or what's in style. So Hashem said, I have instilled this hate in the Goim to protect you. To protect you, because if they loved you, they would welcome you, and then all of you would not be you anymore. You'd be them, and there would be no more Jews. Because you already want to do it when they hate you. And the only reason that's stopping all of you from doing it is the fact that they hate you. So Shem says this is part of the creation. This is actually part of the goodness, even though it looks bad. And we'll finalize it with this. Many times in life, we think that the things... We, everyone thinks that the things that are happening in their life are bad. People get stuck in the moment. If something bad happened in life, no question, it's bad. At least to you, it's bad. To him, it's bad. To me, it's bad. Whatever is happening in your life, you're viewing it at that moment as bad. As long as you're viewing it only as bad, 
means we still haven't learned this Mishnah completely. And the reason why is because Hashem says, I created the world and I judged the world with goodness. Meaning, we learn from Rabbi Akiva at the end of Masechet Brachot, everything that the merciful one does, everything that Hashem does, is always for the best. Meaning, there is no such thing as bad. There's no such thing as bad. Everything he does is the best possible thing that could ever happen. This throws our entire human logic in the garbage. Because, first question you say, well, how is cancer bad? How is the Holocaust? How is, how is cancer good? How is the Holocaust good? How are the pogroms good? How is Bet Mikdash being destroyed good? How are all these bad things good? If everything that Hashem does is the best, meaning it has to be good in order for you to be best. So if everything He does is for the best, that means that everything is good. How could everything be good if it's so bad? How? This is where we have to start understanding our own limitations due to us being human beings. Meaning, we're never going to fully understand why Hashem does what He does. Never. Rambam says, to understand them, I have to be Him. But we can understand being parents. Now, anyone that's a parent, they have a little kid. Would they ever tell their little kid, little seven, eight, nine, ten year old kid, honey, go do me a favor, pick up the car, bring it in the house? Like, pick it up over your head and bring it inside the house? No, right? Why? Unless the kid's an incredible Hulk. They're not doing it. Why are they not going to do it? Because they know they can't. So a parent that loves their child is not going to give them anything that they know they can't do. Why? Because they don't want to see their kid fail. Why? Because to see their kid fail breaks their heart. Because they love them. And they only want the best for their kid. Every normal parent wants the best for their child. So to see the child fail hurts the parent sometimes more than the child. To see the child go in the wrong direction more times than not hurts the parent more than the child. And the reason why is because the child, while he's making mistakes, most of the times doesn't think it's a mistake. He doesn't think that smoking a little weed with his friends is a big deal. No, Ima, come on, relax. In your time, they didn't do it, but in my day, everybody does it. Look, they do it on TV. It's legal in California, in Connecticut, in Colorado, and pretty much all of America. Look, they even have a holiday for it. The kid doesn't think that smoking a little weed is bad. The kid doesn't think that having a girlfriend at 14 or 15 years old is bad. The kid doesn't think that having a kid at 16 is bad. He doesn't think so. He still lives with Ima and Abba, but his girlfriend just gave birth. He doesn't think it's bad. That he still doesn't even know what earning a living is yet, but he already had a kid. He doesn't know how to be a kid, but now he's a father. He doesn't think it's bad with There's anything wrong with it. 
Because it's cool. The mom, the dad that says, listen, I have some experience with it. I'm telling you, it's not a good idea for you. You're too young. You haven't matured yet. You're not ready to be a father. You're not ready to be a mother. You're not ready to handle the consequences of what happens when you do drugs. You're not ready to handle the consequences of what happens when the cops catch you. You're not ready to handle the consequences of what's going to happen to the future in 20 years when you still can't get a job for getting caught one time with a little bit of heroin. You still can't get a normal job. Why? Because you have to spend some time in jail. And unfortunately, the world today, they look at you based on your resume. Resume says jail, no one hires you. This is the reality. It's the reality of the world they live in. Not because they're against the people that went to jail. It's not because of that. It's because there's so many better options. There's so many people that didn't go to jail. There's so many people that didn't do drugs. Why would I pick the guy that went to jail? When I had a company, I looked at people's resume, their resumes. I had hundreds of resumes every day. And every day you have to look at resumes. It was like an employment company, even though it was an investment business. But you run a company, you have, you have to look at employees. So I would interview these kids. And I'd ask them questions. And by the way, 99% of all resumes are complete lies. The person and the resume are not the same thing. They always say they know things that they don't know. They always say they like things they don't like. The only thing that's similar is the name. That's his life. Business owners know this is to be true. This is not uh, just an insult to people. It's, it's true. It's what happens. People lie in their resumes because they are trying to portray themselves as better than what they are because they figure that whatever they are is not good enough to be hired. Fine. Whatever. It is what it is. But you look at these resumes and if anyone says on their resume, I like to do drugs on the side. I, went, I spent three years in jail. I have a record. Anything like that. You stop looking at the resume. You crumble it up into a nice ball. You throw it into the basket. You hope that you make it into the basket and you go like this. to Everybody says, ah, I got it. And you go to the next resume. Why? Because you have 99 other resumes of people that didn't go to jail and didn't do drugs and didn't have problems. It's not a, nothing against him. There's nothing to do with him. It's just there's so many better options. This is what boggles my mind sometimes when people make excuses of why they failed. Some people say it's because I was, I came, I, I was brought up poor. Some people say it's because I'm black. Some people say because I'm Spanish. Some people say because I'm Jewish. Everyone has an excuse of why they're not succeeding. You're not succeeding... Because you're making too many mistakes. That's why you're not succeeding. If you let your color in the way, you're never going to succeed because you let the color in the way. Not because of anybody else. If Obama achieved anything in his life, was the fact that he showed you, you could achieve anything you want. Even if you don't know anything, you've never done anything, and you've never said anything right, you can still become President of the United States. If he did anything right in his life, he could show you without knowing anything, achieving anything, you could speak well, you could be President of the United States. So color didn't get in his way. If anything, 
He celebrated it. Color didn't get in the way of Jay-Z. Didn't get in the way of P. Diddy. Didn't get in the way of all these celebrities that have hundreds of millions of dollars and more money than they could count. Didn't get in their way. They used it to their advantage. But anyone that has a sad story to tell you will always have an excuse. Oh, I failed because I only had one parent. You know what? So did many of them. Oh, I failed because I was broke. Oh, yeah? Did you have $35 left to your name? I did. I still made $20 million. $35 left in my pocket. I had to use it to survive for the next month. After I ran out of money, I had to borrow a dollar every day for six months. Six months I had to borrow a dollar from the kid Dimitri so I could eat and drink. I could eat donut and drink coffee. That was my food for the day. That didn't stop me from being a millionaire one day. The fact that I lost all of it later on in life has nothing to do with it. Point is, it didn't stop me. Oh, I'm an immigrant. I was too. Oh, I didn't finish college. I didn't initially either. Oh, it was hard. So was my job. I started my day at 5.30. It finished at 1.30. At some point, I slept because I couldn't, close, I couldn't open my eyes. Oh, this and oh, that. Everyone has excuses. Your excuses are the only thing getting in the way. It's not your color. It's not your religion. It's not anything. It's you. You're getting in your way. Hashem is telling you, while you're so busy getting in your own way, I'm going to do you a favor. When you get too far off, to the point where you're going to a dead-end street, I'm going to hit you. And the reason why I'm going to hit you is because if I don't, you'll arrive at the dead-end street and you can't turn around. There's no U-turn. It's the electric socket. You can't go back from the electric socket. So when you get a flat tire on the way to a big meeting and you end up missing the meeting... That's only because Hashem says, if I let you continue, you would have been part of that accident on the highway. If you would have made the meeting, you would have made the money, and then you would have used the money to do things, more things against me, like you've already done for the last 30 years. So I didn't want you to at least have that money. If you would have made the date, you would have married her, and she's not Jewish, and that would have ruined the rest of your life. If you would have made the zivug, you would have met him, but he's really a wife-beater. And he just looks good. And it would have destroyed you. There's many, many things that happen to us and we think are bad. But in reality, if you believe in God of Israel, it's only good. Only good. He's doing you a favor, even though it looks horrible. You ask somebody, listen, why does he make people sick? The easiest answer, it's not necessarily a one-size-fits-all, but the easiest answer is because everybody becomes religious when they're sick. You go to the hospice center, as I learned from my dear friend Fidel, everybody believes in God. There are no atheists in the hospice center. There are no atheists on a deathbed. 
The biggest atheist will ask the smallest rabbi to give him a blessing. Sickness makes you realize that you're mortal. Makes you realize you're not God, like you've been pretending to be for the last 50 years. So he's doing you a favor. So Rabbi Akiva is telling us here, your choices, I know what you're going to do. Your freedom, I'm still going to give you, even though I know what you're going to do, I'm not going to get in your way. When you make the wrong choice, the world was judging goodness, I'll give you the option of doing tshuva. And everything depends on the abundance of good deeds, remember. I need the world to continue existing. You can't get to a point where it's the 50th level of Tum'ah. You can't get to a point where it's unrecoverable because I promise my son Noah, I'm not going to destroy the world. I promise my son Moshe Rabbeinu, I'm not going to destroy the world. I promise my sons Avraham, Yitzchak, and Yaakov, I'm going to give their children the Torah and the Mashiach, Mashiach is going to save them. I made all these promises. So don't ruin it for me. I can't let the world get to a point where it's unrecoverable. So when you get to a point where you're the one that's going to make that one extra sin that takes everyone off the map, I'm going to stop you. I'm going to do you a favor by stopping you. Even if that means that I have to kill you. 